is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that uh, our brother Keith, as he brings your word to us, Lord, that you will stir up your word in his heart, stir up your word in our hearts, open our hearts, Lord, to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Hey, thanks everyone for coming today and actually finding where we're at because it's like we're changing all the time. We're in a different place all the time. But my name is Keith, and uh, I go to church here. And please be in prayer for James. I know that James uh, appreciates your prayers as it's a lot of work to do what he does and kind of being away and having a time of refreshment, especially where it's not as hot as it is here, is kind of a treat. And I know he's getting to spend a lot of good time with his uh, boys and his wife. And so we want to keep James in prayer. But hey, for the next two weeks, uh, I am going to uh, unpack a little bit. I'm going to attempt to unpack this very challenging... Uh, scripture that David just read, and I wish that I could read it with that amazing accent. I always wish that I could read the Bible with a British accent, but it's, it's not going to happen. I, I am what I am. But we want to unpack the question of, are we living dead or alive? Uh, how are we living our lives? Are we walking dead people? Are we walking zombies? Or were we actually alive in Christ? And that's a question that should really resonate with you because a lot of us kind of go through our Christian lives and, and we just don't see the joy we think. Is this all there is to it? And especially with the pressure of the world, you see the world all around you, you, you flip through your apps on your phone and you, you see the message is quite different from what you hear when you come to church on Sunday or Friday or any day of the week. And you find that the message is challenging because there's such a stark contrast. And so what I want to do today is do my best to try to unpack this idea and see if uh, this, this can resonate with you and uh, show you some hope as far as how you would live your lives dead or alive. So uh, today there may be some of you listening, some of you here, that may not even believe the Bible. You know, we have a lot of traditions in this fellowship. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but we come from all parts of the globe. We come from many different traditions, and we come from many different ideas theologically. But no matter what your tradition is, no matter what your idea is, I believe that we can all agree on something. We all struggle with our faith. It's not easy. Anybody that ever says that following Christ is an easy thing just is not telling the truth because it's difficult. I think all the figures in the New Testament as well as Jesus himself would say that walking the life, living for God is, is not something that's easy. It's something that's very challenging. So today we're going to look at this uh, and, and really, this, this, uh, this message is kind of broke up into two parts. The first part would be more the bad news, the difficult stuff. So I encourage you to come back next week because the encouraging part is next week. That's not a plug for coming back to church, but you want to hear the rest of the story. Uh, so to get the instruction about this, um, we want to look at a man named Paul. 
and many of you know that the Apostle Paul wrote a good portion of the New Testament. So uh, the New Testament can be divided into three primary sections, I would say. The first section would be the Gospels, which we are familiar with the life of Jesus. What Jesus did, walked with his uh, disciples and his life, and that's the four Gospels. Immediately after that history of the Gospels, you find the book of Acts. That's also really an unfolding of what? Of how the church began. So what we enjoy weekly on Fridays here at SAR Fellowship is really recorded from the very inception in Acts 2 until the end of Acts, how the church went down, how it happened, how so many people were added to the church. And then finally, the final section of the New Testament is the epistles or the letters. And the epistles or the letters are primarily written by a guy named Paul. Now, a lot of people look at Paul and they say, uh, Paul, he's really holy, I'm not, I can't really identify with Paul. And that's really where we're going to park in our message today because there's a bit of a misconception, I believe, especially with pop culture today, that the figures of the Bible are far different from us. And they didn't face the same challenges we did. They didn't face the same difficulties that we did. But I believe if we examine the life of Paul today and we examine who he was, I mean, for example, I'm just going to read a few scriptures here about Paul from Acts 7, the unfolding of the church. Uh, this is talking about a guy named Stephen. They all rushed at Stephen, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Sound familiar of our world today? Began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Sound like a pretty rough character, huh? Somebody that we wouldn't call an apostle. Somebody that we might even say, would we welcome this guy to our church? I mean, this is a really rough guy. The, the New Testament goes on in Acts 8.3 to say, Saul began to destroy the church. Destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged men and women and put them in prison. So this is the guy that we're looking at today, just to be clear and kind of clear all the misconceptions about who we're looking at. We're not looking at some holy guy who sat in a temple and cast down his judgments to mankind. We're looking at someone who is really probably worse than a lot of people in the room if you were to measure sin, although we shouldn't do that. Uh, all sin is equal in the eyes of God. Finally, in Acts 22, Paul himself says, I persecuted the followers of the way to their death. I persecuted them to their death. If you read the news today, you find that all over the world, Christians are being persecuted to their death. And of course, we would look at the people that do that, and we would say, they're terrorists. So is Paul a terrorist? Can we imagine that the person that we're going to take this instruction from today is a terrorist? Yeah, and the reason why is because Paul himself would tell you that he was living as a dead man. He was a walking zombie. He didn't have the capability of choosing the right thing. He didn't have the capability of doing the right thing. He didn't have the capability of finding the right way because all he could think of is dead thoughts. He was a dead man. He was a walking dead man. That's Paul by his own admission. So today we're going to look at the writings of Paul uh, as the majority of the New Testament is written by Paul and we're going to look at his struggle. So if we were to sum up uh, what Paul wrote, we could probably sum it up in two statements. So I'm just two statements here. This is a, a summary that I found and so maybe it would resonate with you. The first statement that Paul says in all of his writings, a majority of the New Testament, is sin doesn't dictate where you go when you die. Sin doesn't dictate where you go when you die. Now, we all know this, right? The gospel. 
If you believe in Jesus and you trust Christ as your Savior, you trust His death, burial, and resurrection, then you can be saved. Hallelujah. You got your fire insurance policy, you're going to heaven. Sin doesn't dictate where you go when you die. And unfortunately, a lot of the people in the church worldwide really stop right there. And they never enjoy the fullness of what God wants for us because that's only a small part of our life. It's not about having a fire insurance policy. Hey, I got it. I'm good. Going to heaven. We're good. Now I can live my life and do all the things that I want to do. No, it's, 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 it's way, way more than that. In fact, Paul goes on, and as a matter of fact, the greater message in Paul's writings really is summed up in this. Sin doesn't have to dictate what you do while you live. You may say, what does that mean? Dictate what I do. Sin doesn't have to dictate what you do while you live. So sin doesn't have to be your master. You don't have to be your master. Sin doesn't have to be your master because you've had the chains broken of sin in your life. And if you, if you really understand that and you connect with the truth in this text today, you'll find that you can live a much more victorious life because all of us struggle. As a matter of fact, many of us in our Christian lives are in an endless cycle. Here's how the cycle goes. I go to church, I listen to some audio, I listen to a sermon, and I hear this amazing uh, truth. So I make some changes in my life, and after two days, I'm right back where I started, and nothing really changed. And so I try again. I go to church, and I hear some great things. Oh, yeah, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. And we just end up in this constant cycle. And we find ourselves saying, what is this Christian life all about? I mean, I got the fire insurance policy, but other than that, where's the joy? I'm not, I'm not finding it. I'm not finding any freedom because I can't stop doing what I don't want to do. I can't stop. I can't stop. And we make excuses like this. Well, you know, my father was like this, so therefore, genetically, I have to continue doing this. Or my family was like this. Or, hey, you don't understand the pressure I'm going through at my job. You know, all the people I work with are not believers in Jesus. Therefore, I have no power to control what I do. Or, man, I just, I can't control myself. I mean, it's, it's just natural what I do. I, I, I want to do the right thing, but I don't. Well, to be honest with you, Paul went through this same struggle. And Paul actually wrote in the New Testament and the book of Romans, a scripture that really zeroes in on exactly what Paul was going through. And all of this is a background for the text we're coming up to today. So I know you're thinking, wait a minute, Keith, where is Ephesians? It's coming, so stay with me. But this is Paul's struggle. Paul said, for I do not understand my own actions. Now, I'm not going to ask for a, a raise your hand, but I'm sure you can identify this because I certainly can. Why do I join the gym and the next week I don't go? I mean, literally the next week you sign up for the gym, you're going to get healthy, you're going to get fit, and the next week you just don't get up. Why is that? Why is it as humans that we do that? Why is it as humans we say, you know what? I'm eating way too much fast food. Man, here in this country, there are so many options for a shawarma or a burger, and I know I should eat fruit and eat healthy, but I just can't help myself. Why is that? And I'm not just talking about food, and I'm not trying to really convict anybody in the room here. I'm not trying to be a diet coach. Let's talk about your family. Man, I can't stop being that way to my spouse. I just can't stop. You know, my father was that way, so I just can't stop doing that thing. I just can't stop yelling at my children. I know it's probably over the top, but I just can't help it. My father was that way. I was raised that way. That's who I am. You're right. That's who you are. 
prayer to meeting Christ. I just can't stop struggling. Paul goes on and he says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Isn't that crazy? I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I don't know if you can identify with that, but man, that's exactly where I am all the time. We struggle with our sin. We struggle with this big, heavy, heavy, heavy thing called sin. And I know that that in our culture today is not a very common thing or popular thing to talk about. As a matter of fact, if you go to most college campuses today in the West, because we live in a postmodern culture, and you mention, uh, you go on campus, you can, okay, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Trinity. You explain to them how the Trinity works, and they say, oh, that's great, man, that's good for you, that's cool. You talk about Jesus, for example. You might get a little pushback, but oh yeah, I heard he was a good man, I'm good, blah, 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 blah. You bring up the, the, uh, the, the, the subject of sin, and suddenly people get angry. People don't like to talk about sin, and I'm sorry that today I have to bring you this message about sin, but it's something that finding the solution to it and working through it and letting Scripture speak into our lives, we can get control of this thing and, and really see some change in our lives. Um, so Paul struggled with sin. Then Paul was on the road to Damascus here in the Middle East, and Paul saw a big light. And you guys probably know the rest of the story. Paul's life was radically changed. And then Paul began to be used of God to write a majority of the New Testament, as we talked about before. So the question you may be asking is, okay, so what's the deal with this thing, sin? And if you've never met Jesus and you're not following Jesus right now, you might say, you know, I'm really not a sinner. As a matter of fact, I'm a pretty good person. Like you describe this guy, Paul, and I don't, I don't drag anybody out to their death. Come on. I've never done anything horrific. I've never done anything indicating that I should have a heavy prison sentence. You know, I'm okay. Pretty much, I'm a good person. Well, the scripture tells a different story. So, in Adam we all sin. So, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. So, what happened is, Adam sinned, and therefore we sinned. So there is a uh, commentary that I was reading about this subject, and, and I'm going to read a little uh, clip of what it says. It says, It may not seem fair to be saddled with Adam's sin. I don't know if you can identify with that, but it may not be fair to be saddled with Adam's sin. But it's eminently consistent with other aspects of human propagation. So think about this. We inherit physical characteristics such as eye color from our parents. For example, I have brown eyes. Let's say my whole life I really want blue eyes. I've looked on Instagram and I've been on Snapchat and all the cool guys have blue eyes, so I want blue eyes. So I go and I try to get colored contacts. I'm just joking. So, but we inherit our eye color from our parents. We also inherit, inherit other physical characteristics that we really have no control over despite what the pop culture tries to tell you today. We don't have any control over those things because we inherit them. So the word here is inherit. In the same way we inherit the sin nature from Adam, it's transmitted to us when we're born to this world, 
if we have the same blood throwing, flowing through our body that Adam had, which we do, uh, we're born from a man and a woman, unlike Jesus, who is only born from a woman. So what happens is we have this sin nature in us. It's a part of who we are. We struggle with it. So this commentary goes on to say, we may complain about having brown eyes. We wanted blue, but our eye color is simply a matter of genetics. In the same way, having a sin nature is a matter of spiritual genetics. It's a natural part of life. So now with this background, we're going to come into the text that we're going to study for the next two weeks. This week, we're going to talk about Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Next week, we're going to complete this with Ephesians 2, 4 through 11. And man, it gets really exciting at this part. But understanding this background really helps when you're looking at the good news because the bad news can be difficult if you don't fully understand it. So to read it again, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. I don't know if you can identify with that, but I sure do. Carrying out desires of the body and the mind. And by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So when I read this text... I basically see four things here, and, and maybe if you're following along. Um, initially, the, the text tells us here that we're dead. So what does that mean? And you may think, wait a minute, so you're telling me before you're a Christian, you're dead? I see a lot of people that appear as non-Christians, and they look pretty alive to me. Like I know this bodybuilder, and he's really alive. He's, you know, he looks great. He doesn't look dead at all. But what we're talking about here is spiritual death. Okay, so spiritual death is a little bit different from physical death. Now, we're all going to die. Everybody knows that. The statistics on death are actually 100%. If you haven't checked on that, I went on the internet. I saw a Wikipedia article. The statistics on death are 100%. We're all going to die physically. Spiritually is a different thing. So spiritually, when we're born in Adam, we're born dead. The scripture teaches that over and over and over. So... Um, to continue on this idea of being dead, the phrase is actually completed by dead and transgressions and sins, trespasses. So what are trespasses? What is that? So trespasses are basically false steps. So it's like you're trying to walk and uh, you just make a false step. And I know probably everyone in this room has sprained their ankle or almost sprained your ankle before because you took a false step. In life, we take false steps. Um, the second part of that is Sin. So what is sin? Well, sin is basically missing the mark, right? Romans 3.23 says, for all of us have sinned, right? So we're all sinners. We're all guilty. We're all in Adam. We've all sinned. So what does that mean? So if I were to take somebody in here that's extremely athletic, I'm looking around trying to find the most athletic person. I'm not going to put you on the spot. But if I were to take somebody very athletic and I, they were to stand up here with me and we were going to take a rock and we're thinking, James is up in the UK right now, so let's just use London. And we were going to throw this rock as hard as we could. Your rock would probably go further than mine because I played baseball, but not too long, American baseball. Uh, but your rock may go further than mine, but neither one of us would hit London. I mean, of course, it's, it's far. So we're missing the mark. We're, we're missing the mark of London. We're missing the mark. In the same way, sinning means we're missing the mark of God's holiness. God has a standard. He's 100% loving, 100% just. We're missing the mark. Now, additionally, tied in with that, idea, with that idea is that sin causes us to 
earn death, right? So everybody in the room probably earns a paycheck. We all get paid. And I know today it carries a different meaning because it's electronic. It's not like the old days where you got a paper check and you could stand in line at the bank and queue up and take your number and cash your check. But we all earn that money. So you work very hard. And I know many of us probably work a lot of overtime and we don't get paid for the stuff that we do extra and that's the tension in your job. But you all earn that money. So you get that money and you say, well, it's not what I was hoping, but it'll work. Let's pay the bills. Let's enjoy our life. That money is what you earn. That's your wage. In the same way scripture teaches Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So we earn death. So we sin from Adam and we earn death. So if we never trust Christ as our Savior, we don't know how to get out of this prison. And then additionally, we can trust Christ as our Savior and we can live in a prison because we don't understand the reality of sin in our lives and we don't understand how to overcome it, even though God saddled us up with amazing equipment to overcome it. Um, This is interesting, I read this. The irony of dead man's dilemma is that he doesn't even realize his condition until after he's saved. Think about that. The irony of dead man's dilemma is that he doesn't even realize his condition until after he's saved. Lost men, blinded and deceived by Satan, think they are really living it up. You talk to a lost person that doesn't know Jesus, and they say, oh man, you're, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm living the life. I'm doing this. I'm going to this party. I'm doing this. I do whatever I want. Nobody's my boss. I'm my own boss. So you're weak, you're following that silly little faith, you believe in that phony God, you believe in that old book that doesn't really speak to the world today. It's all been changed, you've heard all the stories. Lost men, blinded and deceived by Satan, think they are really living it up, when in reality they are dead. They think that by living in sin they are enjoying life to its fullest, but they are not. They suppose that they are free, subject to no one, but in reality they were enslaved. So when you combine both of these words, trespasses and sins, and the fact that they're both plural, trespasses, sins, plural, uh, it really signifies the fact that a person who has not yet trusted Christ is imprisoned by sin. They don't have the ability to make good choices. It doesn't even make sense to them to make good choices. That's why when you talk about politics, between, I don't want to be too controversial, but when you talk about politics between somebody who knows Jesus and somebody who doesn't know Jesus, the motivations are different. The reason the motivations are different is because there's a different agenda. There's God's agenda and there's the world's agenda. So going on to the second point in this verse, uh, we learn that we're dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked following what? The course of this world. So the people that don't know Jesus, again, we're going to use the word dead because that's the title of the series, Dead or Alive, so we've got to be consistent. Uh, The dead people follow the ways of the world. They follow the lifestyles of other dead people. So you go on Instagram, you go on Snapchat, Facebook, you see dead people. Dead people want to model their lives after other dead people, right? So if you're dead and you're really cool and hip, you might want to have other people follow you because they're also cool and hip. So hopefully this is starting to make sense if you trusted Christ before in your life and you're trying to think. And keep in mind, this is written to the church. What I'm reading here is written to a church just like us. This is not written to people who don't know Jesus. This is the church at Ephesus. 
So we're talking about something that should be the reality in our life and reflecting back and understanding what work Christ did in us will free us. Um, John 15, 18 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is Jesus talking. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news today, but this is Jesus himself talking. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all of these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. So think about the increasing opposition to Christianity all over the globe. I know that many times in our prayers here, we're praying for people all over the globe that are receiving intense persecution. It's just going to get worse. The reason why is because if they crucified, if, if they persecuted, excuse me, Jesus, they're going to persecute us. It's just how it is. It's the part of our faith. Now, the secret is, is that we can have joy in all of that. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. So moving on to the third point, um, and this is a really heavy one, is the incredible underestimation of Satan in our world. So immediately when you think about Satan, if you follow any pop media, you're going to think of a guy that's on your iPhone or Android that has a purple face and little horns, right? And when you're mad at someone, you just give them that emoji, right? So that's Satan, right? So we, we characterize him in this silly little way and well, oh, Satan, he's so cute. Let me just give him a little Satan face and if uh, you speak Arabic, you may know that sometimes people call their kids shaitan because they're acting poorly. So we kind of have dumbed down who Satan is. Satan is not as powerful as the scripture makes him out to be. But did you know that Satan was the most powerful of all the angels that God created? So in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 18, God described Satan, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Perfect in beauty doesn't sound to me like a little purple face with horns. Uh, you were in the garden of Eden, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering: the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold of your workmanship, of your settings and sockets were in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Does this sound like the little emoji face that's purple with horns? It doesn't to me. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you created it until unrighteousness was found in you. So this is Satan. This is our enemy. Now angels are described in the Bible sometimes of having upwards of an eight-foot wingspan. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll find any time that an angel was discovered or found by a human, there was great fear. I mean, people would fall down and, wow, I saw an angel. I'm frightened. And if it was an angel of the Lord, immediately people were calmed down. Hey, don't fear. I'm here with good news, et cetera, et cetera. But this is the, this is the group that Satan hung out in before he took the bad guys with him. 
So we're not talking about somebody who's weak, who doesn't really have the power to control us. We're talking about somebody that we're really no match for. And Ephesians here is talking about the prince of the power of air, who, who Satan is. So 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, we hear today about social media being blocked and people being blocked for their viewpoints or whatever. In the same way, the same concept, Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they don't understand the right way to go or the, the right thing to do. So what does Satan think about us as believers? Well, recently, a few weeks ago, I was in Europe and I got to take a really fun tour of a Jewish synagogue. And uh, I love to visit historical places and learn about history. And it was, it was a sad story because in the synagogue, we learned about this horrible uh, event that happened during the Holocaust. So the country of Hungary actually borders Germany and Hungary in World War II was allied with Germany. And so during this uh, time period, uh, all of the Jewish people unfortunately were placed on the train and shipped up to Auschwitz where you guys know the rest of the story. So it was a very horrible time. So I heard a story that was very moving and probably moving to you because I feel like God has created all humans and he loves all humans and we should too. I mean, really doesn't matter what your political viewpoint is, your race, your nationality, your religion. God loves everybody. He created everybody. He wants all people to come to him. So here I am with this in my mind and I hear the tour guide say this, the troops came up to this group of Jewish people one day and they said, take your shoes off because your shoes have more value than you do. And that was just, man, that was gripping. Can you imagine a human saying to another human that your shoes, which are really something kind of dirty if you think about it, are more valuable than you do? That's not even half of what Satan thinks about you. So when you think about that thing you want to watch, that thing you want to do, that way that you want to follow, that's Satan's idea about who you are. Satan wants to destroy your life. Brothers and sisters, I can't share with you enough how much Satan really has a plan to absolutely obliterate you and destroy your life. As good as he is at advertising his wares as being fun and enjoyable, ultimately they will destroy you. Um, so in contrast, if you go back in uh, Ephesians and you read chapter one, you see things like God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So here's God over here blessing a believer with every spiritual blessing. You've got the tools on your belt and you're ready to go to battle with Satan. This is what God's given you. Over here you've got Satan who thinks less of you than that horrible soldier back in World War II. And I know that all over the world today there's probably atrocities happening that I'm not even aware of. So I'm not trying to compare one atrocity with another. I'm just saying that was a moving moment. So that's what Satan thinks about you. So put that in perspective as we're looking through this text and try to really grasp the power of what Satan wants to do to your life. Um, the next point and the final point here is, among whom we all once lived to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So to someone who does not live in Christ, they actually live in Adam. Right? We can live in Christ or we can live in Adam. So let's kind of re-spin that a little bit. You can either live alive 
or you can live in death. What is the difference? Um, So the behavior of dead people described here, the conduct of unsafe people is the sphere of cravings of their sinful nature in which they desire. Um, It's interesting here that the word, this is out of a commentary, the word for children suggests a close relationship to one's parents. In contrast with sons, speaks of distinctive characteristics. So unbelievers don't have a relationship with God. As a matter of fact, unbelievers are characterized in Scripture as enemies of God. Whereas believers in the New Testament are characterized as sons of God. That's a familiar relationship. He loves us. He wants to bless us. He wants the best for your life. He really does. I know it doesn't seem that way when you look at maybe social media, but God wants the best for everybody in the room. As a matter of fact, God wants all people to know him and all people to have the joy in their life that they can have. Um, In sharp contrast, those who have trusted Christ are adopted. So Ephesians 1.5 says, Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I have some homework for you this week. It's a lot of fun. Take a pen and paper, your iPad, whatever you have. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. It's not that long. It's not going to take a long time. And just write down everything that you got when you became a believer in Christ. It's pretty interesting to understand, wow, I got a lot more than I thought I had. I didn't realize that God did that much for me when I chose to trust in him. So my brother uh, lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And my brother uh, and his wife decided to adopt a child. So they looked around and they began to pray and they actually adopted a child from China. So there's a ministry in China. And I'll be honest, I forgot the name of the ministry. But in China, you know, there's a rule about having one child. So during this time period, several years ago, there were many children that were discarded. So little Hugh has a cleft palate. Is that what you call it? A cleft palate? I'm not medical. I apologize. But Hugh has a cleft palate. And so... He was adopted by my brother and his wife, and it was a very costly thing. I mean, my brother and his wife got on a plane, went all the way to China with their children, paid lots of money to, to do this adoption. But in a similar way, when I looked at his adoption, we're in the same way adopted by God uh, when we trust Christ. Uh, a few points here. Number one, adoption is costly. I mean, I talked to my brother, man, it cost a lot of money to adopt a child. You wouldn't believe how much taxes, government fees, et cetera, et cetera. But once it was done, it was done, but it cost a lot of money. So it's also costly to Christ to have you believe in him. Can you imagine he gave his life not too far from here up in uh, Israel? Jesus gave his life for us. Uh, number two, it's, it's legal. There's legal procedures. So just like it's costly, there were a lot of things that my brother had to go through both in the States and once he got to China to do this legal transaction of making this child who was born Chinese and born with all the benefits and uh, uh, all the benefits and all the uh, responsibilities of being Chinese and making him an American citizen and a son of my brother, meaning that all of the benefits of being a son of my brother, he immediately had. So for example, Uh, Hugh was in an orphanage, and Hugh didn't have proper food always. He didn't have always proper this and proper that, because a lot of times these ministries don't have the funding that they need to supply for all the children, right? So he didn't have this stuff. My brother adopted him. As soon as he took him out of the orphanage and he traveled to the hotel, instantly Hugh had 
an endless supply of food, money, everything that he needed because of my brother uh, taking care of him. In the same way, brothers and sisters, when you trusted Christ, you were adopted into his family and you have everything that God has. You have all the blessings, you have all the favor of God. It's really powerful. Adoption gives us the rights of the father. This is so important. Hugh did not have a passport or a house that he lives in or the ability to go to school. Can you imagine that? And perhaps maybe not the rights of the world. He was discarded by his parents, right? Discarded. He's not perfect. We don't want him. We want another child. Same way Satan discarded you and wants to discard you and wants to mess you up. Hugh had that happen to him. But my brother came and adopted him. And in the same way, adoption is such a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us. So the question I have for you today is, who is your master? Or how do you know if you're dead or not? Well, I've got just a few ideas here, and, and I'm not trying to point fingers at anyone because every one of these should come right back to me because I'm the chief of all of these things. But the first one is, do you have conviction from sin? Do you feel bad when you do something that you know you're not supposed to? Do you have any conviction or does it not matter? Can you just endlessly go and do what you're not supposed to do? No problem in the world. Having a good time. I know I shouldn't look at that, but I'm looking at that. I know I shouldn't go there, but I'm going there. Is that a struggle for you? Secondly, do you genuinely love your neighbor? We live in a country here with a lot of different kinds of people with a lot of different cultures that do things maybe the way you wouldn't want to do them. Do you really love them? Would you invite them to dinner? Do you really love your neighbor? Next, do you enjoy praying or talking to God? Some of us never pray like we pray when we come to church along with David or whoever the service leader might be, but we never pray. Do we enjoy praying? Do we want to pray? Do we have a desire to be a part of what God's doing in the world? Do you have a thirst and hunger for knowing God? Do you really want to know God? Or do you really want to flip on the new Netflix series that you've been dying to see? Or do you want to sit down and you know, watch the new uh, presentation of the new device that you've been waiting for? Where does, your, where does your heart lie? Finally, do you regularly glorify Jesus or do you glorify yourself? Who do you glorify? The Bible says in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. So while we were following this way of the world, we were in Adam, we were dead, we were in the middle of our sin, we didn't even have an idea of what it looked like to know Jesus, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The biggest lie ever told, and if you're here today and you've been told this lie from Satan or been whispered this in your ear, or this is running through your mind, my sin is too great, I'm sure God won't forgive me. My sin is too great. You don't know. You don't understand. Those secret things that I've done, man, my family doesn't even know I've done that stuff. My sin is too heavy. I can't be forgiven. Yes, you can. The reason that I demonstrated the life of Paul is to demonstrate to you that if a terrorist can be saved from his sin, I'm sure any of us in this room can be saved from our sin. So I have three closing thoughts for you today um, to kind of tie this all together. And I have three things to kind of put in perspective uh, what I've said today to kind of make this synchronized in our minds, right? So the first thing that I want to do, and I tried to choose words that had the first letter because when you 
preach at a church, you're supposed to do that. So I got that memo, I got the message, and I tried to do my best to Google things that I could find the right words. So the first thing you got to do is you got to claim. What do I mean by claim? So initially, you have to believe that Jesus is your Savior. So 2,000 years ago, roughly, uh, I'm not precise, so if you are, you know maybe the exact date. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ of Nazareth was crucified for your sins. So when he finally breathed his last breath, he died. They took his body that was bruised, beaten, spear in the side, took him off of the cross, and they laid him in a tomb. And they put a very heavy stone over the tomb. Now, I've gone to Israel to check this out for myself because I'm a little bit inquisitive, and I saw the stone that looks like the one that they rolled over. Who knows what it was actually like? Archaeologists are working on that. But I can tell you, there's no way I could move that stone. So that stone was moved by many guards in front of that tomb. But by God's power, the following morning, his disciples came to the tomb, and he wasn't there, and the stone was gone. And people were very afraid. So that's what God did for you. So if you believe in that point, you say, God, I understand that that's the sacrifice you paid for my sins. The Bible says you're saved. There's no special uh, thing you've got to read. You don't have to say a little, you know, certain kind of prayer. You if you believe in that point, the Bible says you're saved. So when you become a believer in Jesus, your life radically changes. And next week, another plug for next week, it's really exciting. We're going to really go deep into that and find out exactly what he did. So number one, you've got to claim this. Maybe you're here. I know that many of us have already done that in the past, so we claimed it. We, we've done it. So you need to claim it. Now, when I say claim it as well, you also have to claim that sin is not my master. Let's all say that together. Sin is not my master. Sin is not my master. I want to encourage you throughout the next week to try this. When you're walking through the airport and you start to check that lady out, and you know you shouldn't, just say, sin is not my master. I don't, th that power is not over me. Maybe it's over you guys. You're not a believer, but I don't have that power. See, Christ has armed you with all the stuff that you need. Maybe, maybe you're a lady or a guy and you're struggling with something. I could sit up here all day long and just go through different things, but I don't, I don't think I need to. I think you know what you're struggling with. Maybe it's a relationship. Some of the things that we struggle with that are sinful are horrible in God's eyes and we make them so nice and pretty. Maybe you really have a bad attitude to your family. Just say it, sin is not my master. Whisper it, sin is not my master. I don't have to follow sin because it's not my master. I don't follow sin, I follow Jesus. So therefore, I can claim that with boldness. Second of all, you've got to choose. Romans 6.12 says, don't let the sin reign so you obey its evil desires. So sin is a noun. You can sin as a verb, but sin is a noun, it's a thing. It's a big company. What's the largest company in the world right now? Maybe Apple Computers, Google, one of those guys. Billions of dollars in their coffers, huge companies. Sin makes that company look like a tiny little tea stall. Sin is a big company. They do a lot of business. It's a noun. And if you obey its evil desires, if you're getting the credit card of sin and you're trying to spend on sin's bank account, and you're trying to get the text messages from sin, and you sign up for the email alerts, your life will change, and you will become more of a sinner. So Romans 6.12 says, Don't let sin reign so you obey its evil desires. You have a choice. 
you can choose daily whether or not you want to follow sin or not. Now, if you're not saved, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you've never believed in what I just said a few minutes ago, you don't have that choice, unfortunately. And I pray every day for people to be able to have that choice, but you don't have it. But if you have done that, brothers and sisters, you have a choice. You don't have to follow sin. You don't have to. You can just say, sin's not my master. Sorry, we're good. So what did Jesus do? When Jesus was in the desert, he was tempted by the enemy. He got his Bible out from his memory, and he quoted scripture. So I would encourage you, if you are struggling a lot, and you're saying, man, I just, I feel so defeated every day. I just get up and it's the same old thing. And man, I turn the television on and suddenly that image comes on the screen or I'm looking at my messages and that anger comes up in me or whatever. Just say sin is not my master. And I want to encourage you to just go to like Colossians 3. Think on things above, not on things of the earth. Memorize it, say it, say it out loud. If you're in your car, I know that the people beside you might think you're talking on your phone. Just say it. Sin is not my master. Don't be a slave to it. Finally, we need to confide. So the only way to live a victorious Christian life is to confide in Christ. Let Christ control your mind. We live in a very perverted world. I know that in the church today, we've kind of dumbed down the seriousness of sin, and we look at social media you know, you download on your iPhone the uh, news app and you just kind of flip through these stories in whatever genre they are, whether it be news or politics or whatever, and you say, man, we live in a perverted world. The stuff that's coming out today is completely in contrast to God's word. And the only way that you can overcome this is by confiding in Christ. So Christ wants to use you. I can tell you, brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus in this room, you've came to a place in your life where you've trusted Christ, he has a plan for your life. I don't know what it is, but I know that God wants to use everybody in this room. See, to God, it doesn't matter if you're doing this or you're doing this. It doesn't matter if you're used to pastor a very large church of 40,000 people or you're used to lead two people in your home in a Bible study or you're used to lead one person. God wants to use all of you. And I think that when we all get on the other side of eternity in heaven, we're going to be quite surprised that people that we think were spiritual giants are actually not. The ones who are faithful and they're confiding in Christ and they're doing the business that he wants to do are going to be radically uh, uplifted by Christ. So God has a plan for your life. Don't squander it away. Get control of your body. Paul actually says that in another section of scripture. Mind your members, as you would say, I guess, in the UK. Mind yourself. Your feet, where do your feet go? What do your hands touch? What do your eyes look at? What do you listen to? All of that stuff that comes in is input. The more bad input you put in, the more that bad stuff's going to come out. Even if you know Jesus, it can happen. So you can live as a dead man, or you can live a very alive life. Just try it this week. Start saying, sin is not my master. Your life will radically change. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this wonderful group of people, and I pray, God, today that you would give us all the power to overcome sin. It's a horrible, wretched thing, and we don't want it to be our master. I believe that we would all say that, Lord, but I know when we walk out the door, things change, and, and frustration sets in, and God, I just pray that you would encourage everybody in the room uh, to be able to have the power to overcome sin and to remember to set reminders, to memorize Scripture, and to be able to say, sin is not my master, and use your power to overcome sin and not try to use our own. 
God, I, I pray that nobody in the room would assume because of our church attendance or our service for you that we uh, don't have the same temptation that everybody else, Lord. I know that we all do, and I pray that you would give us the power to overcome it. Lord, I pray that you would bless us all this week. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe now we're going to sing our last song, and as we